For those who don't know me um, or, or who are visiting, my name is David Dean. Um, I am the husband of one wife, Julie, who is playing keys and uh, the proud papa of a new little baby boy, newish, um, little Asher. He's just coming up to his first birthday. I was um, joking with Shinko, I don't know, a little while back, um, that over the last 12 months with the influx of babies that we've had at this church, you know, we have future-proofed her, her role at Calvary Chapel in the children's ministry coordinator position. Um, so uh, if you're here, I'm guessing you're probably back into the swing of things. We've got a lot of people away at the moment uh, on holidays, no doubt. But if you're here, you're probably back at work. And that's actually a very smooth segue into what it is we're going to be talking about here. Uh, for the next two weeks, um, I, I was thinking of just doing it on, on this one week, but it was, it's too much to say. But for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at this topic uh, of work. And I've titled the talk um, Towards a Biblical Theology of Work. Now, the reason why I've titled it that is uh, by towards, I mean it's not going to be complete. Uh, it's, it's towards something of a biblical theology of work. There is so much that we could say on this subject uh, that we just don't have time to get into. And it was so difficult to cut different parts out of the preparation as I was going out of the manuscript. So towards is, is we're, we're getting ahead with something of a biblical theology here, but it's by no means complete. Now, why do I say um, biblical theology as opposed to just say theology? Well, systematic theology is, to, as a contrast, is the idea of um, taking a topic from Scripture and isolating all of the occurrences, say, of, um, I don't know, the Holy Spirit or something, and everything the Bible has to say, and then studying it in, in one category. Biblical theology looks at an idea or a theme in Scripture, but it moves through the chronology of the Bible. So what we're doing here with a biblical theology of work is we're looking at the subject or theme of work, but we're starting at the beginning before the fall, before sin, in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to move through the narrative of the Bible. We're going to look at it after the fall, after sin comes in, after Genesis chapter 3, and then next week we're going to dive into um, what it looks like in this era that we live in now called the church age, so from a New Testament perspective. To help us on this journey, I've got a map now, it's, this is pretty much useless, right? It's way too small. I apologize. It looked big on my screen when I was at, at home. I'll fix this for next week. Um, just go back. Uh, thanks, Sean. That one there. Yep. Uh, back another one. Yeah. So this is our outline. This is our map. This is our, our journey, which you can't actually read from there. But there's three main points on that outline. The first one is work in the order of creation. And there we're going to be looking at how our work reflects God's triune nature and how our work participates in God's creative work. The second point on there says work in the disorder of creation. So now this is work from the standpoint of Genesis chapter 3 onwards, after sin has come into the world. And there we're going to be looking at how work reflects our selfish nature, and how work participates in the curse of creation. That's what we're doing today. If it looks imposing and ambitious, it's because it is. So hold on to your seats. Next week, we're going to be looking at the third and final part, which is work in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see how that reflects Jesus's servant nature. So it's more of a kingdom ethic, if you will, and how our work participates in God's redemptive work, which is super exciting. Today's going to be heavy. It's going to be very dense. Um, and I think you'll probably need to go over it again online this week. Um, and that's why I only preach once in a blue moon here. <laughs> so um, hold on as we go through this. Um, we're going to be anchoring ourselves in the first three chapters of 
Genesis. So if you have a Bible or your app or whatever, please flick there now and uh, we'll be working through those first three chapters. While you're turning there, let me just say, uh, by way of introduction, I I preached my first sermon in 2009. Um, That was a long time ago. But I don't think I've ever in my entire little life of preaching looked forward to preaching on a topic as much as I have this one. Um, And there's a reason for that, because this is an incredibly personal subject for me. As many of you know, I I work full-time as an engineer. I work out at the RAF base here in Newcastle in the defence and aerospace industry, have for the last decade. Um, And I've really, really wrestled with certain questions like what is the meaning and purpose of my work? Um, How do I find satisfaction in my workplace? And when we come to a topic like work, I mean, there's so many different ways we could trace this down. Like, you know, how do we talk to people that work about Jesus? That's not what we're doing over these next two weeks. We're going to go meta, beyond high, like high level stuff. What is the meaning of work? What is work? What does God's work look like? What is the meaning and significance of work as it relates to God, to us, and to us specifically as Christians in this life? That's what we're going to be looking at. Um, So there's some of the themes. And uh, as I said, strap in, hold on, it's going to be dense. But I pray that it will be edifying to you because, like I said, I've never had a moment in the study like I have studying for this, these couple of weeks, so... I hope, uh, I hope you're excited, I hope you're pumped. Let's get into it. Work in the order of creation. If you want to flick there in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, as soon as you open up your Bible, you see a whole lot of work being done. Genesis chapter 2, right off the bat, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. Work, work, work. Now leaving aside disputes here about how to interpret these days of creation and so forth, for our purposes here over these next two weeks, I want to suggest we have a divine model for a working week consisting of six days with a weekend of rest on the seventh day. Now, we know from Exodus chapter 20 that this cosmic working week was actually intended as a divine model for ancient Israel. It's inscribed there in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. But of course, you and I don't live under the theocracy of ancient Israel today. We are not beheld to Mosaic law as they were. We live in the church age, we live on the other side of the cross. So in saying that this is a cosmic week of creation that is a model for how you and I are to work, what we mean by that, or what we don't mean by that, is we don't mean that you guys should all go get work that only does six days so that you can have that one day of seventh rest. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, we have Monday to Friday workers here, we have shift workers here, we have full-time stay-at-home workers here. Um, We have volunteer workers here. We have retired people here. That's not what we're talking about here when it comes to this model of work in the creation narrative. What I think the takeaway here is, is that in this model, we need to appreciate the principles of work and rest. 
We could have done a study here on rest, and we should sometime. But as we look at this, these two principles of work and rest, there is a clear primacy given to work over rest. Six-sevenths of this working week are dedicated to work. That's 86% when you do the math. There is a clear primacy of work over rest. Already you're starting to smell a little bit of a contrast to the way our culture works, aren't you? We see in this primacy... um, We see this primacy in the description of God's creation of human beings. If you flick back to Genesis chapter 1 and look there in verse 26, we read this. Let us make mankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So you see, God's work in creation... He works as this model of how to work and rest. And then within that context, he creates mankind in his image and in his likeness. And what is the first thing that he says to us? The first thing that God says to us. Go to work. To have dominion over all the earth. That's a job description. Work is good. Work is not a consequence of the fall. This is Genesis chapter 1. God works. He's calling us to work. Work is not a consequence of sin. Work is an intrinsically good thing. And it's a calling given to all of us, Christian or not. This isn't a distinction that's been made here. This is a generic call to all of humanity. And this calling to have dominion over all things on the earth, it's not a calling to plunder and pollute the world as some environmentalists have charged. The Bible is saying, literally, in the literature, you look this up, People have argued that the problems that we face in society today with respect to the culture, with respect to the environment uh, and the abuse of the environment comes back from imperatives like this in Scripture to have dominion over the earth, to rule and subdue it. That's not at all what, when you do a historical grammatical study of what this is, it's not at all what that's talking about. Dominion here is one of a stewardship of caring and cultivating for the land. And this is borne out in Mosaic law itself. When you look at the laws given to Moses there, there are so many laws regarding treating your neighbor, treating your prop- their property, treating the land, treating cattle. We are called to care and cultivate for God's creation. God is the Lord of creation. We are the servants in charge of his creation. This is not an abusive calling that is given. It's a commission to care for God's creation. After all, we're made in his image, right? And he's a caring God. He cares about the creation that he made and it was all good. And he calls us to that work with him. You know the old uh, question, what is the meaning of life? Well, part of the answer is work. This is the first thing God says after he creates human life is to get to work. It's a part of our design. It's a part of our nature our God-given nature, part or a consequence of being made in the image of God is that we work. It's unique to human beings then. And by the way, I believe uh, this is one of the reasons why people who don't go to work or people who can't work for some reason or another have all sorts of serious existential life crises going on in their lives. Obviously, some people can't work for disability, disabilities or, or whatever, um, and they, they just can't work in any capacity at all. I'm not speaking about people like that in those situations. The crisis comes when people who can work 
don't work, whether out of choice or not. Because if we were created to work, then not working means we aren't living in accordance with the way we have been designed. And when something isn't functioning the way it was designed, it's inherently destructive. I need to get a better analogy, but you know, you can go play cricket with a delicate china cup from your kitchen if you would wish, but it's not going to last very long and it's not very good for the cup. (laughs) When you understand what something is designed for and use it accordingly, it flourishes. Human beings were created to work. It's part of our design, and when we don't, it's inherently destructive. You can get online and find study after study, peer-reviewed article after peer-reviewed article, showing the psychological effects of unemployment on people, on their physical well-being, on their mental well-being. There's even seriously strong correlations to rates of suicide and unemployment. You can empirically validate everything the scripture is suggesting here. All right, so from the beginning of the Bible, human beings are called to work, and this call is a consequence of our being made in the image of God. Let's get a little bit more specific, though. What do we mean when we say going to work is a consequence of being made in the image of God? That's all, you know, nice, David, but what does that mean? Well, I want to suggest at least two things. First of all, our work reflects God's relational nature. And secondly, I want to suggest that our work participates in God's creative work. So let's uh, look at the first one there. Our work reflects God's relational nature. If I were to ask you, why do you go to work? What would you say? To make money, to put food on the table, to provide for your family, so you can buy stuff, entertain yourself, have a good time. Well, think about this scenario for a moment. Imagine you want um, your bathroom tiled. So, I don't know, you hire some well-respected tiler from Newcastle to come and do the work. Terry's a tiler. <laughs> and so you... This, this analogy has nothing to do with Terry, by the way. <laughs> and so you get this tiler, you contract them, and they come to your house, and they do their work, and you pay the invoice, and that's that. But then suppose... In a week or so after you've started to, say, use your shower within that bathroom, you notice that the floor tiles, just the the gradient, they just don't, it doesn't allow the water to drain properly, right? So it's pooling a little bit. And then when you look a little closer, you actually see some of the the glue or grout or whatever it is that holds the tiles together starting to lift up a little bit. And you can see, you know, the edges of these tiles moving. One week, what are you going to do? Well, you'll contact that tiling company in the least. And you'll get them to send out somebody to come fix it up. You'll probably say, don't bring back the previous person, bring out someone else. Free of charge, I'm not paying for that again, right? You expect a well-tiled, waterproofed bathroom. And if that goal is not achieved as a paying customer, you're within your legal rights to demand that it gets fixed. By the way, Terry did come tile our bathroom. Six years later, it's excellent. So uh, let me make that very clear. You would expect that tiler to come back and do it free of charge. What does that tell us? Well, in our culture, we have a tendency to think of work only in terms of paid work. So the idea of work is really all about a means to a self-serving end. And as such, it, it is really viewed in terms of what we get from it. But I think what this scenario helps us to see is just the opposite. The primacy or the purpose of work is not what we get from it, but it's what we give in the service. That's why the tiler has to go back and fix their work, even at a personal cost to themselves. They have to give and give and give until the work is done, regardless of that cost. Work is geared more towards the giving, in other words, than the receiving, 
as the Apostle Paul said, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you're wondering about a definition then of work, here's one to consider. Work is any activity involving physical, mental and spiritual effort in the service of others. Work is any activity involving physical, mental and spiritual effort in the service of others. In the broadest possible terms, that's our work and definition for these next two weeks. And that's, I think, what work is because it includes all of us, whether or not we're employed and get money for it or not. Even if we're at home working with children full time, even if we are retired and serving in some capacity, a volunteer capacity or what, even if we are students at school or at university, if we are working in some capacity, this definition, I believe, holds true. We've got to move away from seeing work as paid work, in other words. Work is such a bigger concept. That's what we're talking about here. Let me just give you another example real quick to help point this out. As many of you know, I just said it before, my wife uh, is here and we had a little baby boy this last year. She is a trained medical doctor, uh, but she hasn't been working in that capacity for the last 12 months. She's been at home full-time with our little baby boy. But even though she hasn't been making money, would anyone here today, right now, in this very moment, like to stand up and tell everyone that she has not been working? Didn't think so. (laughs) In fact, some mothers shaking their heads profusely. (laughs) Now, look, I don't mean to speak for Julie, but from my perspective, I think she's, she's worked harder these past 12 months than she ever has in her life. And in saying that, I am not at all meaning to put down her work as a doctor. I'm meaning to elevate her work as a mother. It is so comparatively easy for me to go off to work, to clock on, to clock off, know that my efforts are going to get something in return. But there is no clocking on or off as a parent. And if you're a parent here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm preaching to the choir. It is relentless. It is give, 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 give from the deep stores of love that we have for our children, but with very little to no material return. Frankly, I just think it's crazy that in our culture today, there is this tendency to undermine the stay-at-home mom or dad as though that is not real work. When the reality is, I think it is one of the most difficult and demanding workplaces there is. And all that to say... (laughs) We've just got to have a high view of work. Work means more than just financial stuff we do. Work is any activity involving physical, mental and spiritual effort in the service of others. So now bringing all of that back here to bear on what it is we're looking at. How does all of that reflect, reflect God's relational nature? That's what we're talking about here. Well, it does in the sense that work is one of the ways we make ourselves useful to each other. Work is one of the primary ways we connect with one another. And in that sense, it is instrumental in cultivating relationships in the formation of civilization, cultures, and communities, right down to the family level. In fact, that's literally what the etymology of the word community is. Com munis, com together, munis, duties or obligations, work. Work is structurally communal. And in that sense, I think our work reflects God's relational nature. After all, who is God? A relation of Father, Son, and Spirit. 
in the one Godhead. That's not a contradiction, the doctrine of the Trinity. It is one God and three persons. One being or nature, three persons. Not one person and three persons. One divine nature, three persons. That's what we see here again, Genesis 1, 26. It's here, by the way. Let us, plural, let us make mankind in our image. And again, we know that the us there is, from at least the perspective of the New Testament, the Trinity. Interestingly, the second thing that the Bible says here, straight after, it calls us to have dominion and to rule and to work over creation. The second thing that the Bible says is that God says to humanity, Genesis 1.28, that we are to be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) Now that is quite obviously another way that we relate to one another, but I'm not here to talk to you about the birds and the bees. I'll leave that to your mummy and your daddy so we can move on. The second point here underneath this first point, so it is how our work participates in God's creative work. This second way is um, another consequence, again, of being made in the image of God. God is a working God. He is living and active in all three persons of Father, Son, and Spirit, both in the act of creation and in the ongoing act of providence over creation, holding it all together. Whereas the writer of Hebrews says he holds all things together by the power of his word. But as I was thinking through this, I found myself with two questions. First, why does God call us to participate in his work? And secondly, how exactly does God call us to participate in his work? Let's look at that first question. Why does God call us to participate in his work? The answer to this question, uh, I found some gold in the writings of the Protestant reformer Martin Luther. He had some phenomenal insights on this question. Why does God call us to participate in his work? And I found it in the back end of some of his commentaries reflecting on Psalm 145 and Psalm 147, which talk about wondrous works and um, how the Lord's going to satisfy our every need. He's going to feed all living things and so on and so forth. Um, Luther says, reflecting on that himself, he says this, God could have easily given you grain and fruit without you plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. Neither does he want your plowing and your planting alone to give you grain and fruit. But you are to plow and plant and then ask his blessing and pray. Now let God take over. Now grant grain and fruit, dear Lord. Our plowing and planting will not do. It is thy gift. You see what Luther is saying here? God could have made creation in such a way that you and I didn't have to work. He could have just put the cow carcass on the table and we could have had a good roast. He could have done all that for us if he wanted to. Sorry, all the... um, celery and broccoli and stuff as well. Don't offend anyone. (laughs) He could have made it so that the food was available for us on the table. But he doesn't. That's not his design. Instead, he involves us. He invites us to join with him to participate in his work of creation. What does that say about the esteem and value God has for you and for your work, however menial you may think it is? What does that say about the dignity of who you are and of the work that you do? What this means then, and I'm stealing this phrase from Tim Keller, what this means then is that God matters to your work and you matter to God's work. God matters to your work and you matter to God's work. Whatever you do, 
whether you mop up puke at a pub on a Friday night or whether you mop up opponents as a striker at the highest level of the English Premier League. God matters to your work and you matter to God's work. You know, I remember helping Tristan. um, Oh, gosh, that would have been over a year ago. Wow, time flies. I remember helping Tristan uh, over a year ago in his backyard doing some landscaping. Um, There was a bunch of us blokes over there. um, Byron was there somewhere too and some others. Sorry if I've forgotten who was there. We were all there working. It was a hard slog. We were shoveling into a wheelbarrow soil from the front yard, running it upstairs, ramps on stairs, all the way up to the back to kind of level off his backyard. It was pretty backbreaking stuff. But I remember this little image um, as, as I re- was reflected on that moment. I remember this image in my mind of their, their little boy, one of their little boys, the oldest, um, out the back, working with a, a bucket, trying to move soil for his daddy. And that image to my mind is what we see here um, there he is, you know, Tristan's encouraging him to, to work along, to work with him. And um, in that moment, that dad with his little son, it's an opportunity for the dad to teach that little boy, to train him, to help him understand some things. But most of all, that is a relationally intimate moment. It's a bonding moment of that daddy and his son. It provides an occasion for him to instruct and to teach and to grow and to guide and to get close to his boy. Our work is like that. God dignifies us by inviting us to participate in his providential work over creation. And Luther concludes his train of thought on that point right in these words. What else is all our work then but to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war or in government, but just such a child's performance by which he wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. These are the masks of God, behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. That's powerful. I love that. Luther is saying that all of our works are, in effect, God in disguise. When a farmer grows, when a cleaner cleans, when a surgeon operates, when a bus driver drives, when a baker bakes, when a pastor preaches, it is God loving you in and through those people, through the callings that he's put on their lives. All of our good works are the masks of God working in disguise, loving others, providing for them in and through the distribution of his gifts and his callings. So how then does God call us to participate in his work? This is that second question. Well, let's take a look here again at Genesis 1, 26. When God says, let them, us human beings, have dominion, the implication is that this earth is God's creation and he's given us permission, or again, this invitation to join with him in this work that he began in the beginning. In other words, our work, our service to other people, it's not a right, it's a privilege. It's a calling upon our lives. Now, in one sense, the biblical call to work is as wide and as varied as there are gifts and callings and particular work or job descriptions out there. But in saying that, I hasten to add, that is not at all to suggest that all forms of what we call work today are sanctioned by God. There are clearly some kinds of work that are morally reprehensible, which do not in any way reflect the image of God. How so? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but we see why by turning over the page looking here at Genesis chapter 2, if you want to do that. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. 
Here we see this. The Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to rebuild it, renovate it, improve it. No. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. There is the moral limit. There is a moral limit. You see, when the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, that doesn't mean that we are little g gods doing our own thing the way God does his capital G thing. There is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one God. But as human beings, we reflect certain realities of that one God in our own creaturely kind of way. So when we say that we work like God, that doesn't mean that we do the same work as God himself. God works as the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing creator. You and I work as finite, temporal creatures, and there is no equivalence between the two. There is no equivalence between the two. There is a likeness, simile, analogy, but no direct one-to-one equivalence between the two. Clearly not. We are creatures. He is the creator. And we see that here in Genesis 2.15, at least one way of how we see that here in Genesis 2.15. God's work as the creator, it imposes the limits and the laws and the orders in creation, literally builds that in to creation when he says, do not eat from that tree. You and I are called to keep that God-given order and law and structure and pattern built in by God, not us. God ordains... And we are called to keep what God ordains. We both work, but we work in different ways. So we're not lording it over creation, we're serving over creation. Again, this helps us understand what it means by having dominion over creation. Now the Hebrew, this is where it gets super exciting. The Hebrew word for keep here in Genesis 2.15, it carries two related meanings. The same word used to describe the role, the, the first meaning is the, is the way that it is used at the end of Genesis chapter 3. The same word is used to describe the role of the cherubim who guards the way back to the Garden of Eden. After sin and the fall, they're removed from the garden, Adam and Eve. And it says that a cherubim is put in there to guard the entrance. That word is the same word, to keep the entrance, to keep anyone from going in. So there is this sense in which keeping it means guarding. Okay. There's another sense in which the same word is found throughout some of the Old Testament writings. For example, Leviticus and Numbers. It's used to describe as keeping the law, observing and obeying the Mosaic law. So putting these two senses of guarding and obedience together, what we have here in Genesis 2.15 is, in effect, God, God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it in the sense of guarding it by obeying the God-given order that God had just instituted in creation by obeying and observing the god-given order built into creation that is what it looks like to keep the garden and that includes obviously the prohibition from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil don't miss that it's key because if guarding the garden for adam looks like obedience then guess who's going to attack adam's disobedience We're called to guard the garden by obedience, which means the only one who can attack it is us. By disobeying. By going against God's God's God-given order and creation in in the world. 
You see what this moral prohibition to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil provides. It provides a a theological basis for the objective grounds of morality for our values and our duties as Christians. This is, in, in philosophy land, this is really important stuff. Goodness is objective. It's not what you think is good, it's not what I think is good, and let's see if we, you know, our competing goodnesses can work out somehow in creation. Mm-mm. Truth is not in the eye of the beholder. God is truth. God is good. And he has built his truth and his goodness and his beauty into the fabric of his creation. Adam isn't free to go out here and call true and good and beautiful whatever he wants. Beauty is not in the eye of, his bo- in the, eye of the beholder. God owns what's beautiful and we reflect and rejoice in that. And one of the ways we do that here is by obedience. You know, just as a footnote, it's, it's no coincidence in the history of philosophy. I enjoy reading books on this stuff. It's no coincidence that in the history of philosophy, around the end of the 19th century there, uh, when atheism became entrenched within the academy, that one of the first schools of thought to come around after that was what is called existentialism. Um, this movement is... Well, you know that question, what is the meaning of life, right? That is an existential question. It's all about the nature of existence and why we're here. It's no coincidence that that came around just after atheism kind of got real cultural currency. Because when you think about it, if God is the one who created meaning and purpose and order and structure into creation, then if we remove God, we remove any notion of that within the world. And so, of course, you'd have to go out there and find your own way, find your own meaning, find your own purpose. If you take away the meaner, you need to go make your own meaning. So when it came to work then, what this kind of existentialism, and there's, there's some really good tenets of existentialism, so um, I'm, I'm speaking here specifically about atheistic existentialism and people like Frederick Nietzsche and Jean-Paul Sartre, what these people were arguing, particularly in their work, views of work, was that we need to find our meaning and our purpose and our value in what we do, not who we are. And you, you can you see how that is the exact reverse of what we've just looked at in Genesis chapter 1. We go to work because of who we are. That's why we go to work, completely the other way around. They worship and serve creature rather than creator. Sin has a reversing effect, a disordering effect. This atheist form of existentialism says, you need to go make a name for yourself. Tower of Babel, it's all there. You can study this all throughout scripture. And on the surface, this might sound quite liberating, you know, to go off to work and to find your own meaning and purpose in life. But, and speaking from personal experience here, from before I became a Christian, This is anything but liberating. I could, I could show you... I was in a bookstore and I picked up by an existentialist philosopher a book this thick on suicide and there is no coincidence, again, in the history of philosophy. Atheism became big, existentialism came in and some of those existentialist philosophers for the first time were writing textbooks on suicide. There's a reason for it. 
It is a bondage to try and find your own meaning in life. It is a prison sentence to self-centered insecurity. Inasmuch as it is a vain search for the infinite amongst finite and temporal things. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Read Ecclesiastes. I could have read that book here and just walked away and my piece would have been done. That's, if you want homework, that's your homework. Go, go read the book of Ecclesiastes in your Bible. Why is this such a frustrating thing to try and find our own meaning and purpose in life? Because Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has written eternity on the hearts of mankind. We aren't satisfied with the stuff this world has to offer. We have a weight of glory imposed upon us that nothing in this world can satisfy. Look into the things of this world. Look into the produce of our hands. That is analogous to having a thirst to drink up the entire Pacific Ocean and only getting a teaspoon of water to quench your thirst. It is frustrating no end. Forgive me, I'm still on this really big footnote here, um, but I think this is really important. I, I once heard some, one of my professors say that I had a higher word count in my footnotes for an essay than I did in the essay itself. But anyway, <laughs> the point of all this existentialism stuff is to say that in Genesis, we are not called to go off and find our own meaning in work because our work is already meaningful. Of course, there are times when we don't enjoy it, but to look for our life's purpose in our work is to look in the wrong place. I'm not saying that our work doesn't have meaning just the opposite. I'm securing meaning in your work, and this is so important. I had somebody come up to me when I was talking about something obviously related to this in the UK, I, I, I forget, and, and they said to me, David, are you, are you seriously trying to tell me, just because I'm not a Christian, that I don't have meaning in my life? That the love that I have for my spouse or my partner, that that's not meaningful? Is that what you're saying to me? And I was like, absolutely not. That is not what I'm saying to you, not at all. Christianity is not a message that says you don't have meaning, come and find Jesus. Christianity is a message that says your life has so much meaning, let me tell you about the meaner of your meaning. That's the Christian message. Let me give you a basis, a ground, a platform, a, a, a soil that you can anchor all of your roots of meaning into to make sense of them. That's the Christian worldview. Of course, if you don't believe in God, your life has meaning. Come to the scripture and find out why. That's the footnote over. <laughs> so just as Martin Luther helps us with this top-down view of how God's work in and through creation is for us, so we've just discovered here how our work from the bottom up in creation is ultimately work for God. And in this bottom-up perspective, I think another way we can characterize our work is by calling it worship. Work is an act or a form of worship. Faithful obedience to God in our workplaces, again, wherever that is, is an act of worship, ultimately to an audience of one. That's why the Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, how's everyone tracking? Good? Awake? But just a little over halfway. This is exciting stuff. We're about to hinge out now from work in the order of creation to work in the disorder of creation. There's a bit more to go, but, you know, how cool is this? When you think about the, the book of Genesis, I don't know about you, but often we come to it with all this baggage of uh, evolution and science and this, that. We haven't even looked at that. Forget all that, right? 
Look at what else we've just discovered in here about our identity, about our calling, about meaning, about purpose, about work, the thing that all of us do and spend most of our lives doing and yet tragically don't talk about very much. It's all here, right in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. I mean, and when you start to do, you know, your own quiet readings here and you look at, ooh, why was there gold? Why was there minerals? Why is there onyx in the garden? You know, we begin in a garden, we end in Revelation in a city. You can do all that homework yourself, but there is so much in here. It is super, super exciting. Let's turn now to this second uh, part on our outline that um, is too small to read. Um, Work in the disorder of creation. Here we move from the mountain of work as worship and and almost kind of unrelatable, if we're being honest. (laughs) We move from that high, glorious peak of work as worship now down into the valley of work as idolatry. If work in the order of creation looks like God-given humanity, a work of stewardship over, over the earth, then sin reverses all of that and it throws it into disorder and disarray. That's the shift we see here in Genesis chapter 3. From God creating, God creating humanity and humanity to having dominion over the earth, over all of the creatures that walk upon the earth, to one of those creatures crawling upon the face of the earth, having dominion over humanity, where humanity was trying to have dominion over God by being like him. Complete reversal. That is what sin does. It is a worship disorder. It is an upending of God's created order. It is not keeping by guarding and obedience the garden. It is attacking by disobedience. Let's see how specifically as it relates to this subject of work. So 2.1 on the outline. Work in the disorder of creation reflects our selfish nature. Just notice the contrast here with what we looked at previously with work in the order of creation. Where work in the order of creation reflects God's relational nature, work in the disorder of creation reflects our selfish nature. It doesn't cultivate community. Look here at Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 6. We read, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Here we see for the first time in human history, work in the service of self. As humanity looks to the apple of their eye instead of the God of the sky who created the whole thing. Of course, the tragedy in all of this is that Adam and Eve believed a lie, that in the day they will eat of it, they will be like God. They thought that they would become something they already were. They were little existentialists. <laughs> they were trying to find meaning when they already had meaning. They were looking in the wrong place. They were trying to be like God, forgetting the fact that they were already made in the image and likeness of God. That's why we had to harp on about the whole image and likeness of God stuff there in Genesis 1.26. You get that, you get the significance of what's going on here in Genesis chapter 3 when they tried to be like God. And so they took and they ate and the moral limit was breached. Adam dropped the armour of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and he picked up his own sword, the word of the devil, contrary to God, and he starts swinging. Adam went from guarding the garden to attacking the garden. And the rest is history. A history that you and I, after a year like the one we just had and a year that the one we're in that it's shaping up to look like, we know exactly what 
this is all about. There is a disorder here. There is a dysfunction, a brokenness. Creation is not ordered the way it's supposed to. It is frustrated. It is groaning, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8. There is still truth. There is still goodness. There is still beauty. But the truth is so often surrounded by a bodyguard of lies. The goodness is so often only seen in response to great evil. And the beauty is often twisted beyond recognition into barbed wire, whether that's on the fields of battle that we've seen and are seen still today, or in the perversity of what passes for entertainment today. Take your pick. It's still there, but it is marred. It's because of what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 3. To go back to that illustration of that little boy in the backyard, let's make it more general. Let's not think about Tristan anymore, poor bloke. Um, The father and his son in the backyard. What we are seeing here essentially is, in Genesis chapter 3, a picture of that little boy, beloved of his dad, growing up and using that freedom of his dad's invitation to come and work alongside him. Turning that around and in vain selfish ambition destroying the yard that he had built with his daddy and in the process destroying the relationship that he had with his dad. That's the picture we have here. And it's not as though the dad doesn't still love that little boy. Don't, don't misunderstand that when it comes to you know, God and humanity because of sin. Sin is not God turning his back on humanity. It is humanity turning our back on God. Because if reflecting the image of God looks like obedience to God's word, then, well, what did the serpent say? Did God really say? It was a questioning of who God is. And by taking the serpent's word and owning it in our own actions, we disobeyed. We listened to our own word instead of the word of God. If knowing God looks like obedience to God's word, then sin separates us from knowing God by acting on the voice of another. We walked out of that relationship, not God. And the evidence of that is right here in this text, by the way. Genesis chapter 3. We see here in verse 15 the very first promise of salvation, of the provision of salvation. The promise that one day the offspring of a woman will stomp on the head of the serpent, will crush the lies and assaults against God's word. This is the first promise of salvation that would come to fruition ultimately in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who, when in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his woman, God sent forth a man born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, Galatians 4.4. It's a promise by the dad to his boy saying, in effect, son, you can hate me, You can destroy the work that we have done together in this garden. And you can go out there, leave our house, leave our home, and try and make it on your own. But I love you so much that I'm going to come after you. I'm going to leave the 99. I'm going to come after you. I'm not going to put my shepherd's hook around you and break your neck and pull you down and drag you back with me, but I'm going to call your name. And if you recognize my voice, come home. Come home. That is the image that we have here. That is the gospel, and it's here in Genesis chapter 3. We sin, God can't help himself. He makes a provision of salvation within a few verses. And as all of this affects our work, look here now at Genesis three seventeen to 19. God says to Adam, 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Notice here how sin effectively affects the provisions or the byproducts of our work. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Why didn't, why didn't, you know, didn't we just define work as not primarily what we give, but what, not primarily what we receive, but what we give? If that's the case, then why is sin affecting us here in terms of what we get? What's that all about? Well, think about it. Sin affects work in the place where Adam had shifted the goal. The goal was to serve God. But by eating the fruit, Adam effectively shifted the goal from service to God to service of himself. It became all about what he could get for himself instead of what he could give to God in response to what God had given him. And when you look at Mosaic law, again, so many of the laws there have to do with the provisions of work, things like property and cattle and so on, because God knows how our sinful nature is with respect to some of this stuff. You know, we we look at that with our little 21st century glasses and we think a lot of the stuff written there in the Old Testament law is just bizarre. But if we look at it from the right angle... It makes a lot of sense. If you and I today here, there's a lot of New Testament passages about what we're talking about. Take just money as an example. You remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler? If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus isn't saying that you need to go give away all of your stuff and become a Christian. He's saying specifically to this rich young man that he needs to put his money where his mouth is. If his mouth is professing faith in Jesus Christ, then he needs to remove the idol of his money by giving it away so that his profession is true. There's no problem with having money. It's what's underneath that. It's whether or not it is the goal of our work, the goal of our life. The problem is not the thing. It's what we do with the thing and how we live with that thing. As Jesus said elsewhere, elsewhere, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the other and dis- devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why can't you serve God and money? Again, thinking this through, if you make money the primary purpose or goal of why you go to work and how you go about your work, then everything you do will be done with the goal of making the most money possible, with maximizing that profit margin. Now, if that's your goal, then in order to do your job well, you're going to have to do whatever it takes to make that money. But this can be very difficult to do at the same time as obeying God. Because now all of a sudden, cutting corners, committing fraud, theft, bribery, scams, tax evasion, all look really tempting because that is my goal. So to do your job well, you're going to have to do whatever it takes to get there. I'm not being sensational here. We have human resource departments for a reason. This is one of them. This is a massive reason why. And in big corporations, we have HR teams for HR teams. We come to church and we just sit underneath one guy, God. Simplifies the problem. I've seen this in my own life. I've seen managers who have had making money as their primary goal. And when you have that as your primary goal, as your God, then human beings made in the image not of god but of money just look like not people but profit margins with a pulse idolatry is dehumanizing 
That's why the Bible is so hard on this stuff. That's why the first of the Ten Commandments is love the Lord, you shall have no other gods before me. If you can get that one right, you don't need any of the other ones, but God knows that we need them, so he spells it out for us in crayon, 613 different ways for good old Israel. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, Jesus summarised in the New Testament. Work in the disorder of creation reflects our selfish nature and that, finally on your outline, perpetuates the sin cycle by participating in the curse of creation. You remember that we said at the beginning of all of this how work is good. Work is still good, despite living on this side of Genesis chapter 3. Work isn't the problem, again, it's our relationship to that work as we try and go about it in this cursed creation. I mean, just contrast what we see here in Genesis chapter 3 with what we've just looked at in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2.15, remember, we saw God put Adam in the garden to work it and to keep it. The Hebrew word for put there in verse 15 carries the idea of resting. We see the same word used in Psalm 95.11 to speak of rest in the promised land, for example. And when you contrast that idea of rest in Genesis chapter 2 with what we see here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, you don't get a bigger contrast. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Here's the contrast. In a sinless world, we work for the glory of God. In a sinful world, we work for the glory of ourselves. In a sinless world, our work is restful. In a sinful world, our work is restless. In a sinless world, we work to live. In a sinful world, we work to death. You don't get a bigger contrast than life and death. It's right there, though. Genesis 2, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 3... You're going to die with your work till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That is why we work ourselves to death. Vanity of vanities, says the writer of Ecclesiastes. It's a chasing after the wind. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go to late and go to rest late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. To put stock in the provisions of what you can get from your work is to make an investment in hopelessness. Because without God, it's all ultimately meaningless. Objectively speaking, no matter how great a worker you are, even if your work is so impactful in this world that there's this thing called a legacy that lives on after you, you are ultimately reduced to a corpse in the ground for the choice picking of worms. And that is the irony in all of this, by the way. The tragic irony. Human beings become food for the ground when the ground was meant to be food for us. That's the reversal of sin. That's the dehumanizing implications of sin. That's what sin does. Our work shifts from having dominion over the earth to the earth having dominion over us, from our living and reigning with God to us dying in bondage and dust. Well, are you really going to leave it there, David? (laughs) Yeah, we're going to wrap this up now, but let me just say quickly, 
I guess first by way of wrapping up what we've looked at, what we've seen, first of all, is that work in the order of creation, it reflects the image of God. It's a spiritual act of service, um, giving our time and our energy in the service of others, ultimately for the glory of God. Then we have just seen work in the disorder of creation and how that's brought about by sin and how that messes with our understanding of the purpose and the byproduct by reversing it, making the byproducts or the provisions of work the purpose and and forgetting the purpose to glorify God altogether. And this is a low point to end as you go to work tomorrow or, or straight after this. But let me just encourage you by saying really quickly that this is not the theological end of a biblical theology of work, not by a long shot. Again, this is part one. Next week we have part two. And where we're going to, what we're going to be looking at there is work in the kingdom of God. And we're going to look at what Jesus has to say from Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, what he has to say there about work and the provisions of work. Uh, we're going to look at what he has to say about the ethics of work in the kingdom, this ethic of otherness. And we're going to be looking as well at the position of the worker, the whole idea of a sacred-secular divide or a church-lady division. That's something else we're going to be looking at as well in the kingdom of God. But most of all, what we will be looking at, and this is such good news that, that I want you to stay with today, we are going to be looking at the person and work of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who went to work in a garden much like Adam, wasn't the Garden of Eden. There's a different garden called Gethsemane. We're going to be looking at him in that workplace, achieving what no human being has ever achieved before. Perfect submission to his father, where he knelt to the knee and said, not my will, but yours be done. He guarded the garden by perfect obedience. That's what we're going to be looking at next week. So take heart, there is good news, but we understand the good news all the more because of the bad news. Only when we grasp the depravity of our sin, especially as it hits us in the workplace, is the amazing grace that we sing about so sweet because it can save a wretch like you and me. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to the end of a study like this, which has been dense, Um, but so rich in its practical application as we try and wrestle with the meaning of what we have looked at there in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. Speaking for myself, I just know how this just comes across in all sorts of things in my life, in going to work, in my attitude at work, finding significance when I don't think anyone's watching, obedience when no one's watching, Where are my priorities? Why do I go to work? Why do I come home? What is my attitude? Lord, your word speaks to all of these things. And I confess here in front of everyone, Lord, I have had a bad attitude towards work. It's not a bad place to work, not at all. It's it's really quite good. But in my own brokenness, I am just never satisfied. I'm always looking for the next thing. And here I am preaching... Lord, you have asked me to come here and preach to people about work and I feel like I'm the most unqualified person to do it because I'm going to wake up tomorrow and go to the Monday pulpit and probably be struggling with desires to be elsewhere. And yet, Lord, as I look forward to next week and as I look forward to the things that you have taught me in Matthew chapter 6, 
I'm excited because I know that I don't have to lean on my own perfect obedience, my own rightness in this world. I lean on your perfect obedience and your rightness, your righteousness in Jesus Christ. And so my response, Lord, and the response of every person here under the sound of my voice is to not try and be a Pharisee and pull up their own bootstraps and get on and get it done as though they can, but to repent and say, Lord, I have, because of this broken world I live in, from time to time got a bad attitude towards work, and I'm sorry. But thank you for Jesus He did what I couldn't do. He did what Adam couldn't do. He worked the garden in his submission to you and went to the cross. Father, may we as your people here walk in the resurrection life of Jesus, not see our lives as in bondage to this earth and eventual dust and decay, but Lord, be a people who have already walked outside of that tomb on the other side, not by us, but in your strength and in your person of Jesus. It's not I who live, but you who live in me. May that be reflected as I now live this pulpit in my life, in the places of work you have for me, and may that be so of every person here. May we be a people, a peculiar people, in this world that is so broken and hurting that people would look at us and go, whoa, that's just different. How come you have a peace? How come you have a settledness, a stillness about you when everything in this world is upended? And may that be an occasion to tell people about you. God, I'm excited to leave this pulpit and get to work. Go before us, we know you have, and may we rest in that truth. Amen.